Welcome to Through the Glass Recovery Podcast, where we believe that connection is the opposite of addiction, vulnerability is the antidote to shame, and that recovery isn't just rewarding, it's also a lot of fun. We're your hosts, Steve and Julie. Listen as we get together with friends to shed light on the hard things, talk about the other side of addiction, and how we create a life so full, there's no space left for alcohol. In this episode, we talk with Jane, Nat, and Elaine about setting boundaries. It turns out most of us had never even heard the word boundaries before we got sober. So we share what we've learned and we talk about our struggles. It's not easy to identify boundaries, let alone communicate them and enforce them. Boundaries are all about learning how to take care of ourselves and teaching other people how we'll allow them to treat us. When you're done listening to the episode, hit like, subscribe, or follow, rate, write a review. It all helps the podcast get seen a little bit better. Now let's dive into the episode. We are here today with our friends, Jane, Nat, and Elaine. Thank you guys so much for being here with us. I'm going to have you guys just do a quick introductions for me. Elaine, do you want to go ahead and go first? Oh, I'll go first. Why not? I'm Elaine. I live in a tiny town called Florissant, Colorado, in the middle of the mountains. I'm um, a mother of two, a self-employed creative, and I've been sober from alcohol for over two years now. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. And Jane. Hi, I'm Jane. I'm 34. I live in Brooklyn and I'm coming up on four years of no drinking. Awesome. Very cool. Well, you you quit early. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Not early enough. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. We all get it. Okay. And then Nat. Oh, hi, everyone. I'm Nat. I'm 49. I'm coming from Canberra, Australia. I have uh, 210 days sober after a long career of drinking. And I come here through the app, I Am Sober. Awesome. Awesome. And that's where we met, Nat. Cool. Well, I'm really glad you guys are all here today. I'm going to go ahead and introduce the topic. When we get sober, one of the first things we have to learn is how to set boundaries. We have to decide what's acceptable to us, what isn't, and we have to learn how to hold tight to those boundaries. I think for a lot of us, boundaries are something we didn't even know were a thing until we started hearing the word in recovery circles. I know I didn't. It's easy to just let people walk all over us to try and keep the peace, but it's almost always to our detriment. If we want to create a life that doesn't make us want to drink, we have to learn how to develop boundaries. So when have you had to set boundaries? How did it go? And what did you struggle with or what have you learned? My strongest boundary that I've had to set since getting sober is being sober. I've sort of come to getting sober through usually trying to improve my life on a number of levels. At this time, getting sober, I just realized I needed to stay sober. And the boundaries that I just had to set was I can't see these people or I can't put myself in these situations or I need to make time for myself to do self-reflection. And as I started making those sorts of boundaries, I so it became more important and my, my sole focus. 
I like how you talk about the personal boundaries. Like, what am I going to set? And, and and I think one of the personal boundaries that I set for myself was saying sorry when it was appropriate. So I said sorry a lot for a lot of people, for everyone else, for things that I didn't even do wrong. And so I decided one day that I would write my own definition of what sorry meant to me. And then I decided that I would start sticking to that definition. And so if I needed to apologize for something, then I would use sorry to apologize for something. And that was really hard. That was a personal boundary for me. I'm not going to apologize for someone else's mistake and then take essentially emotional responsibility for it. So that was a really hard one to do, setting it. And then actually, I knew I wanted to say it. I knew this is normally my thing. This is, I'm going to say sorry and no, I can't. And then biting your own tongue and sitting in this really uncomfortable space of silence until the other person gets to talk because it's their turn, not mine. <laughs> so what's your replacement for sorry? There isn't a replacement for sorry. There's compassion. Because sometimes mine is like, oh, thanks for your patience instead of, sorry, I couldn't do this, unex like this huge <laughs> expectation of, of me right now, you know, something I'll, I'll just say thank you for your understanding or something else. Because I, that resonates with me so much, the sorry angle. I didn't even realize how much I was doing it. Yeah, and I, I think when you stop apologizing for things that you don't need to apologize for, what happened with me was I ended up taking ownership of my own things, and I allowed other people to take ownership of theirs. And I think that's the part that gets uncomfortable is letting them keep their, their thing. I'm no, we just wasn't used to it. I wasn't used to letting them own their own problems, their own things. It's like, no, let me take this away. You know, the fixer always have to say yes. And people please my, your way into fixing the uncomfortable situation. And you don't end up winning out of it at all. Everyone ends up losing. And that's the, you know, that's, there's the boundary. There's the doormat. There's the, it's not even like a win or a lose. It's just I'm letting you, I'm letting myself take the emotional responsibility for it. It's, it's kind of like what you said. I say thank you a hell of a lot more, Elaine, than I ever have before. And I think what you said, what's my replacement for it? I think I come up with one and it's different and it just comes from a different place. I try and find a different way to say when somebody comes to me with a problem instead of, you know, I'm sorry for your loss or I'm sorry for that. I try to come up with, something that comes from the heart, something that has some meaning, something that shows that I care in a different way than just saying I'm sorry. I think for me anyways, it's a little bit too cookie cutter and I want to, I want to mean it when I say it now and it's hard to I do. I think that's kind of a people-pleasing thing, the I'm sorry. Yeah. When Steve brought that up to me, I started paying attention and I asked my daughter to point out every time that I said I'm sorry. And I must have that day said it about 50 times. 
oh, I'm sorry that it's cold outside. I'm sorry that I was in your way. Like those aren't things I'm really sorry for. Those aren't things that I need to apologize for. And I think what it does is it just diminishes us. We're diminishing ourselves every time we apologize for something that is not in our control anyway. And if going back to boundaries, there's an awful lot of us that struggle with boundaries because we're people pleasers and because we diminish ourselves and we diminish our own importance. And so we let people get away with everything with us and we let people walk all over us and make demands and hold us to these expectations that we really shouldn't let them. And I think it's all a part of people pleasing and trying to keep everybody happy. I'm definitely a people pleaser. And hearing you guys talk about, I still struggle with saying sorry. I say sorry for everything. (laughs) And I, you know, I do think it has to do with like wanting to take up less space and like not have to acknowledge other people's place in the dynamic or other people's like responsibility in a dynamic. But what hearing you guys talk got me thinking about you know, when I first started learning about boundaries and setting boundaries and it all really did start, you know, once I quit drinking, I then had the room for self-reflection. And I learned this trick early on, which was to ask myself every time I wanted to drink, why do I want to drink? What am I feeling right now that makes me want to drink? And sometimes it would be, I am anxious or I'm nervous, or sometimes it would be I'm angry, or sometimes it would be I had a really bad day and I just want to get fucked up. And I never really, before I quit drinking, thought about why I'm drinking. It was such a like normal part of every day. And so, yeah, I still, you know, four years later, definitely... I'm working on boundaries. I'm certainly better at it than I was before, but it's still a struggle. Um, I'm still asking myself, like, why, like, what am I feeling? Because a lot of times what I'm feeling isn't the first thing I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about what what another person's feeling Mm -hmm. and where I, you know, my role plays into that and how can I make somebody else feel better? I... I'm really glad I have a good therapist (laughs) Uh, (laughs) who's like, you know, taught me that I I think like, I mean, for me, therapy was sort of the beginning of looking at my behavior and she never like called me out on drinking, but probably like a year into being in therapy, I decided to quit drinking and she was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> you know. So yeah. I think what you said there about thinking about how other people are feeling and trying and putting more focus on that is a big part of boundaries. I know I used to say yes to everything. If anybody asked me to do anything, I would just say yes because I wanted that person to be happy. My daughter and I both do a lot of taking care of other people's animals and houses and stuff when they're out of town. And we would have people ask us, 
And I would just always say yes, always. There could be three other places that I was trying to get to that morning. And I'm like, sure, I can add a fourth one, no problem. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, what am I doing? I don't have time for this. How am I going to make this happen? I could feel the stress level rising. And that's a really good example or a really good excuse for wanting to drink. And just saying no to things that were going to take up my time and energy that I really didn't have the time and energy to spare is a really important boundary and a really hard one. Because if somebody's trying to plan a trip to Hawaii and they need somebody to watch their dogs, I want them to have a good trip and I want them to not have to worry about their dogs. And so I want to help them, even though it's going to add so much more to my plate that it's going to make me miserable and crazy. And it was really hard for me to learn how to look at my schedule and say, I can't do this. And then just let them know that's not going to work for me. And try not to apologize because I haven't done anything wrong. (laughs) Just wish them the best in finding someone else, offering a couple of other phone numbers. And that was really hard. Like That was emotionally taxing for me to tell them I don't have time. It is. It's so hard, but it's also really hard to say, I know I said yes, but I dropped the ball because I overcommitted. And that's something that I had a lot of experience with saying, I, I I remember my boss from years ago saying, you said you would do this. And I was like, yeah, because I wanted to be able to. But knowing yourself, knowing your schedule, knowing it's okay to say no, and that's not being mean or bad or a bad person or anything. It's just like, it it doesn't even have to be that complicated, but it is for us for some reason. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I think when you say, pay me now or pay me later, so when I hear saying yes, yes, I'll do that for sure. And then, I, and then afterwards, you're stuck with the bill. You're stuck footing the bill that you're not really sure that you can handle. But I said yes anyway, so son of a bitch. Okay, here we go. And then, like you said, then, then you're stuck with the letdown. But you don't have to deal with that now because, you know, it's not – if it's work-related, you know, it's not due until the end of the month. I still have two weeks, right? Yeah. That's, I can delay the letdown. Right. I can delay whatever that feeling is for two weeks instead. of So I don't have to say no now because that's where it's uncomfortable. So if I say yes, now I get uncomfortable in two weeks and I'll deal with that then. It's just like drinking. Right. I'm going to drink now so I don't have to deal with anything right now, because I know if I drink right now, all of those things will just numb, right, numb themselves right out and I can carry on. Exactly. Until you're like, sober. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then we don't have a choice. So yep. I think we find out that if we don't delay the inevitable and just stand in front of it instead of standing behind it, then everybody wins, not just us. I always feel like a huge component of for for me is resentments as well, because I am a yes person. I'm definitely a card carrying people pleaser. And um, I found though that in sobriety, I was able to really hone in on the resentment piece of it, you know, because I'll tend to say yes to things that I know that I don't want to do, but I don't want to say no. And then I harbor all of this 
icky resentment toward that person when I could have just had the balls to say no, you know, <laughs> and that's caused me to deep dive into why that is, and and those sorts of areas which are really hard to to crack open sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a bit of a different perspective on this, in that due to my drinking, but also to an undiagnosed, fairly ser- serious mental illness, I isolated for a really long time, and so like I didn't. It wasn't that I couldn't say no, I just didn't engage. And so for me, a lot of my boundaries have to do with being um, setting boundaries with myself internally to step out of my comfort zone and to, to look at my self-talk and say I'm not going to engage with that voice in my head. And so for me, and maybe it is because, you know, like you guys have got like a lot of sobriety up and mine's, you know, 200 days is that mine sort of focused more inwards and then that kind of has a, a positive impact outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I wouldn't say that I'm a people pleaser because I haven't engaged with people enough to do that. That is a brilliant point, though, in setting boundaries with ourselves and the way that we'll talk to ourselves. And that's something that's so hard to do and one of the most important things we can do my self-talk for, let's say, most of my life was so negative and so hateful and just training myself to recognize it and then say, wait, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to change the- and try to find some way that something to change it to. That's a really, really important point. Yeah, absolutely. It all starts on the inside, you know, like uh, for myself, at least like being a people pleaser comes from not being pleased with myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and and seeking that external validation. So it's hugely important for that, like making time for self-reflection and and to start like trying to rewire some of those internal voices. And like you said, to set boundaries with myself and how I talk to myself. Yeah. It's really just an outward expression of uh, your insecurities, essentially. Yeah. I think it also gives like a really strong focus for setting boundaries, like not just setting boundaries for boundaries sake. Like, so for example, being sober and having a positive relationship with myself. And then I've actually started to recently add in what my values are and living by my values. If they're things that are non-negotiable, then I can start setting boundaries around those instead of like, because before I was setting boundaries and then I'd go into a shame spiral and go, well, can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? Have I hurt this person's feelings? And then all of a sudden, like, there's no internal focus at all. And it's just all, all out there, me trying to control what's outside of me. I think you said something really important there about, did I hurt this person's feelings? And mm-hmm. boundaries are new for me. This is a whole new concept in the the 14 months that I've been sober. But I'm starting to realize that it's sometimes okay if other people don't like your boundaries. And even if it does hurt their feelings a little bit. One example that comes to mind that was a really, really hard one for me was my oldest kid when she lived at home, had a really hard time being respectful and kind. Um, It was actually kind of the opposite. It was a really unpleasant situation. And so 
pretty clearly stated my boundaries, which were, you need to talk to the people in this home with some amount of respect, and you need to keep your room clean enough that I wouldn't throw you out if I was your landlord. Those were like the two boundaries. And this is this is a, a really damaged relationship. So I was definitely treading lightly and walking on eggshells. But it was to the point where I was really miserable in my own home because my kid was treating me really poorly. So that was the boundary I decided I needed in order to stay sane and to stay sober. All I need is to be treated decently. And I need for your bedroom to not be puking into my hallway. And I was like, you know, that's my boundary. This is what I'm willing to accept. I'm not going to let you cross that boundary anymore. If that's not going to work for you, I need you to think about moving out. And, And she was an adult. So, I mean, it wasn't unreasonable to say that. I really thought that the result would be a kid who treated me with some amount of respect and a slightly cleaner room. And the result was she packed up her stuff and moved out. And didn't, it's not, it's been a really, really painful experience as a parent to go through that. Didn't leave on good terms. You know, it was, and it was awful. And with everything in me, I wanted to go beg her to come back, but my house is peaceful now. And it's been the best thing for me and my sobriety. And I think in the end, it's going to be the best thing for our relationship, but it's been a really hard boundary to set and communicate and then hold firm to. And I think that's the other thing, you know, when we're talking about boundaries, I had to learn that you have to identify your boundary and then you have to communicate your boundary clearly and with intention. And then you still have to like enforce the boundary and to do all of those things is really, really hard, especially when it's a hard one to set to begin with. And you know the person on the other end doesn't like what they're hearing and doesn't appreciate it. And is probably, I mean, I know she saw me as this terrible person and this terrible mother. And But I had to do that. I absolutely had to do that to be able to live in my house without feeling like it was just constant tension. But, but yeah, boundaries can be really painful sometimes. Julie, what you're just saying, first of all, like that sounds like, uh, I'm sorry that you've had to experience that. I can't imagine what that's like. I don't have any kids of my own, but, you know, I feel like I feel your pain. Well, you know, not really, but like, it sounds, I'm sorry. (laughs) Here I am apologizing. (laughs) What I really wanted to point out (laughs) uh, was that you were talking about identifying your boundaries and then enforcing them because how many times have I uh, identified a boundary, uh, said that boundary out loud to someone, and then patted myself on the back and said, great job, Jane, we're done. (laughs) And never having to, you know, never staying with it. And, and then you're back in the cycle, and then you're building resentment towards whoever is ignoring the boundary. And a lot of times in my life, I've told myself, like, you know, if if a person isn't treating me with respect, if a person isn't treating me the way that I would like to be treated, then they are obviously not a good person. But I think like sobriety has taught me that people are complicated and some people do need to be told. And, you know, it's, it's not fair to expect people is what I mean. It's not fair to expect people to know how I need to be treated without talking about it. It's still hard for me, but, you know, I'm trying to think of like specific examples 
and a, a lot of them are exactly what I just described, like times where I, it was so much work for me just to say it out loud. You know, I need X, Y, and Z. And then being like, yeah, I really hit a milestone today. I said my boundary out loud and I never have to think about it again. <laughs> I'm just proud of you that you know what they are though. That's a huge step. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people who are completely oblivious to the word and its meaning. And like, for me, like, I know what it means and I know what I'm doing, but I'm still identifying boundaries all over the place. There's all kinds of invisible shit in my existence that I'm sure I should be looking at with greater scrutiny, but you know, it just takes time. It really does. It takes time to sit back and become aware of these things and then have the courage to act. So I think you're in a great spot. Thank you. I think it's the enforcing it Mm -hmm. is the hardest part. Like it's, it takes so much to even get those words out. Like, like I have to force the words out a lot of times. And then when somebody comes in and waltzes right across the boundary that I set, I'm like, that's cool. That's fine. No problem. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. I don't have it in me to keep to keep doing it, to keep saying the same thing over and over again, or to, you know, if if there needs to be some kind of consequence when somebody steps over your boundary, which I think sometimes does need to happen. You know, you might need to say, all right, I need to take a step back from this relationship, whatever that is. That's where I would, I always freeze. I'm like, I communicated it. That's, that's the most strength I can muster in this particular situation. And it's hard to go through, like follow that boundaries process through actually enforcing it. Yeah. One thing that uh, I just thought of was how drinking is like giving up, you know, drinking or committing to getting through the first day, right? Getting through the first hour of not drinking is such an accomplishment in itself and kind of gives you the the assurance and the courage to get through the next one gave me the courage, I guess I should say. It's learning that I was capable of not drinking for an extended period of time. I started asking myself more questions and seeing like, what else can I do? Like, I didn't think I was capable of anything. And here I am almost four years sober and thinking like, I've still got so much more personal work to do, but it se- it doesn't seem impossible anymore. It might seem like a lot of fucking work, but like it's <laughs> it's it feels good to be like actively working on myself and my relationship th- with the world around me in a way that I couldn't have like said with any sort of confidence before I gave up alcohol. Mm-hmm. There's no way you in that you're going to fully well know that you're going to get that boundary right in the first place. Right. It's yeah. kind of like, okay, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to set it. I'm going to try it. And then Julie was saying, enforce it. There's just staying accountable. First, I guess it's staying accountable to yourself because that's the only way you're really going to enforce it. And then, and then holding whoever it is or whatever it is, even if it's yourself, holding yourself accountable to like, okay, that negative self-talk. No. I am not going to call myself those names anymore. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be mean to myself, even though we're all guilty of it. But still doing your best to enforce it, keep yourself accountable to it. I just want to say that you really can't control how other people 
react to your boundaries, right? So a lot of times people will just ignore them or go in an opposite direction than what you were hoping for. And all that does is like show you some more truth or it doesn't mean that you have to give up your boundary. It means if anything, like it's a good thing you established it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if this is a thing for everyone, but um, I came from a family where boundaries didn't exist. Um, <laughs> yes. So they, um, so, I, so I had one parent who, who ran the roost and was very manipulative and knew how to get everyone to do everything for them. And with, you know, just, annihilated the the emotional stability of the home and then the other parent who didn't um do anything about it and then when I became a parent my son taught me what boundaries were because he would say you can't come in here or you know I I I don't like this and and that's where I and because I, I listened as well you know I was able to start learning about boundaries so I guess I guess my question is is did you all come from families where you didn't have any boundaries yeah, it wasn't ever, it was not a word that I heard, let alone understood until about a year ago. That definitely didn't exist in my childhood. I had a twin sister. I have a twin sister. And so boundaries were pretty unheard of for me as well in that dynamic, but also kind of mirroring what what I was just saying about myself is that like my parents would always set punishments, like you're grounded or something. And then like the next day they would like, it would be over, you know, like they wouldn't like stick to those punishments, which I thought was like cool growing up. But I think like that was my example, I guess, of what, you know, even without knowing the word boundaries, that was like the example that I had set for me growing up. I feel like this, along with so many other kind of therapy, mental health related terms are now becoming circulated in our lexicon so much more, which is a good thing. You know, um, these are conversations I have with my children. But yeah, I think if you're in, you know, the Gen X or, you know, maybe a little bit on the younger side, but and sooner or earlier, I mean, there's all kinds of boundary bulldozing behavior that was going on for anyone born in the 70s and before. I mean, really, like, and I was just thinking about this, you know, when you talk about the ultimate uh, modelers of our boundaries, our parents, and what boundaries they cross early, early on. And for most of us from those generations, especially before, like, you know, Uh, I don't want to call it child abuse, but spanking was the norm. And so that is like the ultimate boundary crossing behavior, in my opinion, um, emotional and physical abuse. Yet that was absolutely the norm if you grew up. I mean, I don't want to say for every single person out there, but it certainly was not frowned upon as it is today. So that is something that I, I ponder often when I kind of go down the roots of like where things come from and and just the lack of boundaries in my existence. I mean, I'm not blaming my parents for it, but it's definitely a factor, I think. Well, it's essentially controlled by fear, right? Yeah. I think about the like intergenerational relationship with uh, alcoholism in my family, 
Um, but I think that uh, boundaries is similar. You know, it's like my parents, what they experienced from their parents was like horrible compared to what I experienced from mine. And yet they think that they had it not so bad because their grandparents were awful to their parents. It's, you know, I guess all we can do is like try to do it better <laughs> and hope that we, you know, hope just hope for the best. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think somewhere in there too, we have to give our parents credit. It's just like what you said, they're trying to do it better than what their parents did. And their parents tried to do it better than what their parents did. So our parents just, just tried to do what better, better than what their parents, their, their parents did. And here we are trying to do better than what our parents did. We're doing the same thing that our parents did for us. We're just doing it all over again. And we're talking about it. We have platforms to do it now. We have different ways to express these things and share that knowledge. Whereas, you know, back then we, it was, it was frowned upon. You don't talk about anything. You don't do any of this stuff that we're doing right now. You couldn't have a podcast. You couldn't have, you know, you'd listen to something on the radio and you had the news. All of that was controlled anyways. This is completely different. You have, there's so many different avenues to, to try and, you know, not feel alone and just, you know, hear so many different perspectives, ones that you want to hear and ones that you don't. But I, it, all of it is valid in some way. At least we have, this is us trying to do better with what we were given. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with what we were given because we're taking that experience and we're going to try and improve on it. I think that's the best we can do with it. We also have more knowledge about this stuff than our parents did. I guarantee you my parents never heard the word boundaries. I think if I used that word in front of them now, they would look at me kind of cross-eyed and not have any idea and might even laugh at the idea of it. I mean, just that's just the difference. And so we also just have so many more tools and so much more knowledge for how to raise our kids and also for recovery and what needs to be done. I think recovery in our generation looks a lot different than recovery would have looked 20 years ago or 40 years ago. We're actually sitting around having these conversations and it makes it less scary and a lot less alone just to be able to do that. So I think in a lot of ways, we're lucky that we're doing what we're doing now. I think the best thing is being able to be vulnerable about it. If I think about the last century, like um, even if I had the language, I don't think I would have been able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability was definitely not a thing that was rewarded or valued. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's like kind of a, uh, I don't know, is that like an opposite bound? No, it's not an opposite boundary, but like it's uh, it's kind of a boundary in itself, right? It's like being not only giving yourself permission to be vulnerable with other people, but like being vulnerable with other people that like don't want you to be, I guess. Right. Like I'm just thinking specifically of like my parents and what it was like to explain to them that I was not drinking anymore and how it was sort of like, oh, this is like a phase, like the time she was vegan in college, you know? (laughs) And (laughs) I had to really kind of shake them and be like, no, I'm serious. I'm not drinking anymore. It's bad. Like, I can't do this to myself anymore. I'm an adult and this is the decision I'm making. Mm -hmm. And it it took time. My parents are great about it now, but 
every time I would see them for a while, it would be like, Hey, are you still, you're still doing that? Not drinking thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. My mom would drink in front of me. And that was like a big bonding thing for us is we would drink wine and watch TV together whenever I was home. And it was really hard to like, kind of lose that bonding experience. But uh, at first she would just drink and I wouldn't. And that made me really feel even more disconnected. And so that was a little bit of a boundary, I guess, is like, you know, I, I never, I guess I'm not there yet. I would never tell my parents not to drink in front of me, but I did. That does, doesn't mean I'm not going to express like how it made me feel. And, and so now my mom doesn't drink in front of me or if she does, it's very like low key and little, it's definitely not like it used to be. It's been like a very, you know, it's been four years of watching my parents grow as people that understand their daughter as a non-drinker. Mm-hmm. That's really cool though. Just to yeah, be able th- that they're, that they're willing to recognize that and that they are willing to grow, I think says a lot. Cause I think some parents would just absolutely not even be willing to listen. So mm-hmm. it's not, it's gotta be hard. And I think that's, that's also something that I kind of come back to when we talk about boundaries is we have to teach people how to be around us. We have to teach people how to treat us. Sometimes that means setting a boundary and they walk right over it. And then we have to reset the boundary because if we've never had a boundary in our lives, we've never set a boundary with any person ever. And all of a sudden we start all these people that are used to just getting whatever they want to get from us are like, what, what do you mean? No. And then they just ignore it. And we, we really have to be patient with them and yeah. keep working to, to teach them what this is going to look like going forward. Julie, you hit it right on the head and I'm going to finish off with that. We talked about personal boundaries, people pleasing, saying no instead of yes, choosing when to say sorry resentment, self-talk, setting boundaries uh, with ourselves, and then identifying the boundary, communicating the boundary, and enforcing it. And last but not least is you teach people how you want to be treated. And that's one of the hardest things to do and one of the most difficult things to do in the social setting where you never had a boundary before. And so I really want to thank Elaine Jane and Natalie for coming on to today and being a part of this podcast, sharing your experience and thoughts. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you guys. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our listeners for sharing this space with us. Remember to subscribe or follow to keep getting new content. And if you have any comments or topic suggestions, you can email us at throughtheglassrecovery at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue to explore life on the other side of alcohol.